I don't know about for you, but it is hard to believe that it is already Labor Day. Don't shoot the messenger, but by all accounts, summer is over. Many of us are now transitioning from one busy season to the next. Maybe it's school starting and getting back into that routine. Maybe it's preparing for harvest and that. Maybe it's something else work-related, but regardless of what it is, we are embarking on a season of change, a season of transition. And in just a couple weeks, summer, by the calendar, will officially end. Fall colors will begin to play peekaboo. Temperatures will hopefully grow a little bit cooler. Not too cool, but a little bit cooler. And the days are already getting shorter. But whether it's our routine or the physical world around us, we are changing seasons in life. Change is inevitable. Sometimes it's small things. Other times it's larger things. But regardless, change brings about challenges. Sometimes we dread those. Sometimes maybe we look forward to it. But there's challenges nonetheless, because we tend to be creatures of habit. Well, the book of Deuteronomy is a book about change and transition. It is a challenge to the Israelites. But actually, geographically, nothing changes. At the beginning of the book, the Israelites are standing on the east banks of the Jordan River. And they're just about to cross into the land that God has promised to their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You can see the star on the map there along the Jordan River is in the plains of Moab. And they're standing there on the river about to cross into the promised land. But throughout Deuteronomy, they remain right where they are. And you see, Deuteronomy is really an address from Moses that serves as a warning label at times and at other times an instruction manual for the Israelites. But at its heart, Deuteronomy is really the final sermon of Moses. And in chapters 8 through 10, Moses preaches to the tribes about the importance of remembering where you've been and of remembering the Lord your God. See, the Israelites are standing on the banks of the Jordan looking at this. The green landscape of Canaan. If they were to turn around, though, they would be looking at this. The desolate plains of Moab. So you can imagine just how excited and anxious the Israelites must have been to cross the river. And yet this is when Moses takes a moment to say, hold up, I've got something to say. And the Israelites are human just like us. And sometimes that sense of excitement and giddiness can lead to forgetfulness as well, right? Now, sometimes that's not a bad thing because maybe you're going on a family vacation and you have the opportunity to forget about school, to forget about work for a little while, right? To forget about that daily routine. But at other times, that forgetfulness can be dangerous. Like maybe when you are doing something adventurous and you just had a two-hour safety briefing five minutes ago, but you've already forgotten what you're supposed to do. 
But regardless, we can understand this sense of anticipation that the Israelites must have been experiencing as they are looking into the land of Canaan after being in the wilderness for 40 years. But yet this sense of forgetfulness is exactly why Moses finds it necessary to stop here and deliver this sermon. Because they are about to cross over into the good land. And over and over again, Moses uses this term, the good land, as he's talking about the promised land. For Israel, this is meant to be a reminder of God's promises to the Israelites, to their forefathers, of this good land that they would be given, one that flows with milk and honey. And Moses' continued repeating of this good land would also be a reminder back to the creation story and that what God created is good and he is about to give them this good land. But Moses wants to make it crystal clear to the Israelites that it is not because of anything that they have done that they are about to receive this good land. No, it is because God is keeping his promises. And so Moses uses the story of the golden calf to remind the Israelites of their rebelliousness and that it is not in any way of their own doing, but that they are being called to remember God's covenantal faithfulness. And this idea, this notion of remembering is an important theme throughout the book of Deuteronomy. And Moses Um, Actually, if you look at the title of Deuteronomy, it means the second giving of the law, the reminder of the law. So Moses is recounting the law to them, and he's also recounting some of Israel's bad habits. But this recounting of mistakes is not meant to shame the Israelites, but simply to serve as a reminder of God's covenantal faithfulness and grace. One author, Thomas Mann, states, Deuteronomy holds together the threat of divine wrath and that strange, inconceivable fact of divine grace, amazing grace. And this is exactly what Moses wants the Israelites to remember as, they about, as they're about to enter into the good land. Our scripture, for this mor- scripture reader for this morning is Marvin Barnes. So Marvin, you may go ahead and make your way to the podium. And if you're able, we'd ask that you please stand and face the center of the room. We uh, face the center of the room because we believe that scriptural, scripture is to be a central part of our lives. And we stand because this is indeed the authoritative word of God. Marvin, whenever you're ready, please go ahead and read Deuteronomy 9, verses 6 through 19. Understand then that this is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God has given you this good land to possess, for you are a stiff-necked people. Remember this and never forget how you aroused the anger of the Lord your God in the wilderness. From the day you left Egypt until you arrived here, you have been rebellious against the Lord. At Horeb, you rise the Lord's wrath so that he was angry enough to destroy you. When I went up the mountain and received the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant that the Lord has made with you, I stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Ate no bread, drank no water. The Lord gave me two stone tablets inscribed by the finger of God, and on them were all the commandments the Lord proclaimed to you on the mountain out of the fire on the day of the assembly. 
At the end of the 40 days and 40 nights, the Lord gave me the two stone tablets, the tablets of the covenant. Then the Lord told me, go down from here at once because your people whom you brought out of Egypt have become corrupt. They've turned away quickly from what I commanded them and have made an idol for themselves. The Lord said to me, I have seen this people, and they are a stiff-necked people indeed. Let me alone so that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven. And I will make you into a nation stronger and more numerous than they. So I turned and went down from the mountain while it was ablaze with fire, and the two tablets of the covenant were in my hands. When I looked, though, I saw that you had sinned against the Lord your God, you had made for yourselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. You had turned aside quickly from the way that the Lord had commanded you. So I took the two tablets and threw them out of my hands, breaking them into pieces before your eyes. Then once again I fell prostrate before the Lord for forty days and forty nights. I ate no bread, drank no water. Because of all the sin you had committed doing what was evil in the Lord's sight and so arousing his anger. I feared the anger and the wrath of God for he was angry enough, to angry enough with you to destroy you. But again, the Lord listened to me. Thank you, Marvin. You may all be seated. I don't know where you are today, but I know that way too often I have a stiff neck. But what does it mean to be stiff-necked? If you literally have a stiff neck, you can't turn your head from side to side. Maybe you slept on it funny last night, or maybe you tried to sleep in the car or on an airplane, right? And you wake up with a stiff neck. Maybe it's even bad enough that things have gotten so out of alignment that you need a chiropractor. Someone who knows how to loosen things up. Someone who knows how to put things back where they belong. I had something peculiar happen to me once in which I actually needed a chiropractor in an emergency situation. And it's kind of a funny story. That's not the funny part, but the funny part is that it all began at the dentist's office. I went to a brand new dentist because I had chipped a tooth. And I went to this dentist, and as they were working on my mouth, they told me they were going to put these spacers in the back of my mouth so they could work on the tooth, and that it would be for my own comfort, because then I could relax my jaw. I wouldn't have to hold it open the whole time. So they go in, they do the work, they fix the tooth, and they pull the spacers out. And they look at me and they go, how's it feel? And I just look at them. And they're like, well, close your mouth and tell us, how's it feel? Does it feel okay? And I just look at them. I can't close my mouth. And she looks at me confused. And at this point, we're both, I think, a little confused. But she figures out what's going on, the fact that I can't seem to close my mouth. And you see, I have this problem that my jaw easily pops out of socket or dislocates. 
and it has dislocated and been out of socket so long that now the muscles have seized up and locked it into place. She realizes this and gets behind me and starts pressing on my jaw, pulling on my chin, trying to get my jaw back in. Nothing. So then she proceeds to bring in everyone who works there, and I think even some of the other patients, to try and get my jaw to pop back in. I'm pretty sure everyone in there came in and worked on my jaw, to no avail. So then she comes back around front and kind of goes, um, so do you have a chiropractor in town? To which I went, uh-huh. <laughs> And she goes, well, I'm going to have to have you, well, I'm going to have to call them and uh, make you an appointment because they're going to have to try and fix this. At which point I'm thinking, you have got to be kidding me. This is not how I was expecting my day to go. (laughs) And I'm also thinking, like, try to fix this? What does that mean exactly, right? Like, I don't like the sound of that. Well, anyways, of course, then I have to get up, walk out, jaw hanging wide open, drive 30 minutes because, of course, my chiropractor's on the other side of town, on the interstate with my mouth hanging wide open like this, people passing me and me passing people and, you know, right? Like, what is wrong with this guy? A yawn got stuck or something. (laughs) Make it all the way to my chiropractor's office, and by this time, they know what's coming, so all of them are standing there looking out the window like, you know, because they're curious, like, this dude's jaw's stuck, you got to fix it, like, okay. So I walk in, they take me right into a room, my chiropractor starts doing the same thing, push and prod, nothing. 15 minutes, still nothing. So then he takes me to another room, puts one of those electric stem machines on my face, so for a half hour, my face is doing this. So then he takes me back into the room, pushing on my jaw, all this stuff, 10 more minutes, nothing. And I'm not embellishing. You can ask my wife. I'm texting her the whole time this is going on, right? Like, this is just bizarre. So then he leaves and brings in his dad. His dad is an old-school chiropractor who is not gentle whatsoever. Finally, after 15 more minutes of pushing and pulling, my jaw snaps shut so hard, I'm pretty sure I chipped another tooth. It said, forget it, I'm not going through that again, it's going to stay chipped. But regardless, my jaw was stiff. It was stubborn, obstinate, unyielding. All synonyms for what it means to be stiff-necked. And after calling the Israelites a stiff-necked people, Moses immediately calls on them to remember and never forget their stubbornness and their rebelliousness in the wilderness because they had put their own stipulations on things. And when we put our own stipulations on things or when we expect something to happen on our own schedule and we grow impatient, we're not being real faithful, are we? You see, the Israelites got sick of waiting for Moses up on the mountain. So they decided to take matters into their own hands. We often tend to do the same. And when we do, we aren't responding appropriately to God's covenantal faithfulness. That's what it means for us to be stiff-necked, rebellious, stubborn, and obstinate. 
We can't live into God's plans for us if we're stubborn and rebellious. And the prophet Jeremiah uses this phrase, stiff-necked, again, and uses this vivid imagery and a vision that he has at the potter's house. And he says, Israel is like clay in the hands of the potter, but those who remain stiff-necked are like a jar that is smashed and can no longer be put together. I'm reminded of that old song, Change My Heart, O God. You know that one? The chorus goes, You are the potter, I am the clay. Mold me and make me. This is what I pray. You see, Jeremiah talked about Israel being the clay, able to be molded and shaped by God. That was their calling. You see, God has chosen Israel. Not because of something that they have accomplished, not because they look best on paper, but because he loved them. He chooses Israel. And then in the sending of his son, he has chosen you and me too. And when we remember that he has chosen us, that in his grace and his mercy and in his love that he now pours out, our necks begin to relax. That stubbornness, that rebelliousness begins to subside. But you see, when we fail to give up control, when we fail to remember God's promises, we grip a little bit harder for control, a little bit tighter, just like the muscles in my jaw. And if you're sitting here thinking, well, I'm not stubborn or I don't do that, you might want to look a little bit deeper because each and every one of us has that stubbornness and that rebelliousness in our hearts. And the verses of that song, all four of them, are the exact same. And it's really simple. It's a plea for God to transform us, to change my heart, O God. Make it ever true. Change my heart, O God. May I be like you. See, every one of us needs this transformation. And it reminds me again of Psalm 139 in which David, King David of all people, the most powerful and accomplished king of Israel, humbles himself, makes himself vulnerable before God. And he writes this beautiful prayer in which he exclaims and recognizes his need for God's grace and mercy. And he recognizes God's perfect knowledge of him. He says, from my, from my rising until my lying down, the words of my tongue before I utter them. You see, he confesses and understands that there is no place he can go that God is not. There is no escaping, no hiding from God. God knows his innermost being because he knit him together in his mother's womb. And he concludes this prayer by saying, search me, O God. Know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Because David recognizes his need for God's mercy and grace. He doesn't have a stiff neck when he humbles himself before God. But he can only do so because he has already received God's grace and mercy. And you see, church, here's the thing. God doesn't wait for us to get it right. 
He doesn't wait for us to get it right because if he did, he would still be waiting. No, God chooses us first. God chooses us in spite of our stiff necks. In his amazing grace, in Jesus, he chooses us first so that we can turn to him and respond in prayer and repentance, just like David does. That we would turn to God, that we would be able to say, you know what, God, I admit it. I'm stubborn. I'm rebellious. I want to do things my own way. I'm impatient. But I know what your word says, and I know that I need to trust in you, that you are in control, that you are working in and through me. So give me a new heart. Work in my heart and transform me so that I might be used for the body of Christ, that I might participate in the way that you are inviting me to. Because when we're left to our own devices, we begin wandering in the wilderness again. We forget God's promises. And we take the things of this world and let them become idols in our own lives. So we must constantly Remember and keep before us what Jesus has done for us. That's why we keep the cross ever before us because we must always remember and never forget what Jesus has done and what he continues to do with the right hand of the Father. Because when we don't, when we don't ask God to search our hearts, that rebelliousness, that stubbornness, our pride, it creeps right back in. I want to give you three quick takeaways as we finish up this morning. The first is this, that the enemy is a master deceiver and he will seek to manipulate us and he will seek to manipulate the good land. So what Moses is doing here is he is giving them a warning and he is saying, don't let what happens next go to your head. You're about to go into this land and take it for yourselves to overtake the Anakites, but don't you dare think it is by your own doing. Don't begin to think that you are more powerful than they, because quite frankly, you're not. It is all because of God's covenantal faithfulness. Remember and never forget what God has done. The second point is this. It's that in Deuteronomy, Moses stands in the gap. He stands between the wilderness and the good land. And here in our passage for today, it is no different in that he's playing mediator between God and Israel. And if we look at the journey of the Israelites from bondage in Egypt to Mount Sinai through the wilderness, now to the banks of the Jordan River, Moses plays mediator. And here in this story, Moses reminds the people that after you committed these acts of rebellion and God was so angry with you that he said he could destroy you, that he would start over. But Moses said, I interceded on your behalf. I fell prostrate before the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights. I ate no bread and I drank no water. Now, does that sound familiar at all to any New Testament story? Because we too have a mediator in Jesus Christ, right? The one who went out into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, who ate no bread and drank no water, and then was tempted by the devil. Yet when he was tempted by the devil, he remembered God's promises. 
He didn't turn away. He didn't forget the promises, the covenant that God had made. He kept the commands. When the temptation came, Jesus praised God's word back to him. He praised those promises back to God. And Moses stands in the middle in Deuteronomy and says, Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, to know whether or not you would keep his commands. But even when they didn't, he showed you amazing grace. See, Moses stepped in, and when God said he was going to destroy them, Moses says, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, it's important to make sure you know that even when he says this to God, it says, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's not convincing God. He's not trying to convince God not to destroy these people. God knows what he's going to do. But he is praying God's word back to him because that is the assurance that he has. Moses has that assurance that God will in fact deliver these people. And he prays that word back to him. And we too should pray his word back to him. To be able to say that, God, this is what I'm going through right now. This is where I'm at. But I know the promises you have made. And I trust in you that even in the darkest valleys, you are there. That your love is upon me each and every day. For that is the assurance of the gospel that we have. And the final point is that we too then are called to be mediators. We too are called to intercede on the behalf of others. However, Unfortunately, I think too, ever, too often, maybe we prefer to play judge. To, in our self-righteousness, become stiff-necked, to become stubborn and rebellious. But you see, Moses intercedes, and when God says to Moses, I will destroy the Israelites and make a new people from you, Moses doesn't say, yeah, forget those sinners. He doesn't say that. Instead, he intercedes on their behalf. And when Jesus is being mocked and he's hanging on the cross and he's being whipped and beaten and people are, are shouting at him, telling him to save himself, he doesn't call on God to destroy these people. No, he says, Father, forgive them. Forgive them for they know not what they're doing. He doesn't cast judgment. He intercedes. And he's continuing to do so for you and me at the right hand of the Father today. This is the assurance of the gospel. We are called to be mediators. And when Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? He gives two. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second one is this, love your neighbor as yourself. For there are no greater commands than these. You see, when Jesus sought to be in communion with God, he hit his knees in prayer. And when Jesus sought to love his neighbor, he ate with sinners. He healed the lame. You can't turn your face towards God or towards your neighbor if you have a stiff neck. So 
So we must always remember and never forget what Jesus Christ has done and is doing for us. To trust in him with a grateful heart in order that instead of looking at this world with disdain or malice or judgment, that we would intercede on its behalf. That we would be a light unto this world. That we would play that mediator showing God to this world. Standing in the gap. hitting our knees in prayer so that we might be able to live into that double commandment of love, of loving God and loving our neighbors as ourselves. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the assurance that it gives us for the promises that you have made to us. Thank you for loving us so much that you would send your son to die on the cross. For he did not condemn this world, but he came to love it. Too often we forget, too often we fail to remember, and we remain resistant to your commandment to love you with our whole hearts and to love our neighbors as ourselves. So Jesus, I would just pray that this morning that you would fill each person here continuously with your spirit, that you would search our hearts, that you would rid it of all malice, and that you would transform us. That you would transform us in ways so that we might be useful for your kingdom. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Brothers and sisters in Christ, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. And may he lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace, now and forevermore. Amen.